doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews to a close. We spent a lot of time discussing the superiority of Jesus over the prophets, the angels, and the priests of the Old Testament. We've explored in detail the priesthood of Jesus and seen how it is according to the order of Melchizedek. We've looked closely at Jesus' high priestly ministry and the superiority of the new covenant upon which is based. We've seen how the first covenant was nothing more than shadows and symbols to get us ready for the second. And how Jesus' sacrifice is the only one that can really take away sin. Now, admittedly, the first nine chapters of Hebrews can seem a little repetitious. Our author basically says the same thing over and over and over again. He says it one way, says it another way, and then varies it just a bit and says it again. No doubt he could have communicated the same truth by simply quoting Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But not only does our author want us to know that, he wants us to understand why that is true. He wants us to really understand why Jesus is the only way to the Father. And understanding that is of the utmost importance. His original readers needed to understand that because some of them were being tempted to return to Judaism. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And if they would just return to Judaism, which was a recognized legal religion in the Roman world, the persecutions would stop. Many, therefore, rationalized that since they would still be worshiping the same God, it wouldn't make all that much difference. He wants them to realize that Jesus, in fact, makes all the difference in the world. So what he had to say was extremely important to Christians living around 70 A.D., but it's equally important today. In a day when tolerance goes beyond recognition of the freedom for all to believe as they choose, to the conviction that everything anyone believes is equally true, is not socially acceptable to make universal truth claims. And while one religion may be as good as another when it comes to an ethic to live by, being reconciled to God is an entirely different matter. There's only one way a sinful man can be reconciled, be brought back to his creator, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, by now, our study in Hebrews should have fully convinced us of that fact. But our author doesn't want to take any chances. So before moving on to apply what he's been saying to our daily lives, he brings the doctrinal section of Hebrews to a close with one more look at the sacrifice of Jesus. Again, comparing it to the inadequacies of the Old Testament sacrifices. We're in the 10th chapter of Hebrews this morning. 
For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, as we've already come to understand, the Old Testament rituals and procedures were nothing more than pictures of what would be accomplished with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of Christ. And that was especially true of the sacrifices performed under the first covenant. By virtue of the fact that they had to be offered over and over again, it was evident that the sacrifices really did not adequately deal with the problem of sin. They didn't make perfect. They didn't make whole the worshiper. They didn't rid him of his consciousness of sin. He still felt guilty before God. In fact, every time he offered another sacrifice, he was made even more aware of the fact that he was sinful. Now, I think an illustration of what Old Testament sacrifices could and could not do can actually be seen in dialysis. You know, thousands of people are being kept alive today by dialysis machines. Their kidneys have failed, and if it were not for the machines, they would be poisoning their own systems. They would have no way to rid themselves of the waste and impurities that their bloodstream carries. Dialysis gives them an opportunity to live, a way to have their blood cleansed. Now, it's not an easy process. It's quite technical and has to be done just right. It's also expensive and time-consuming, requiring, for most, twice-weekly visits to a hospital or a clinic. But for those who need it, it's a godsend. It offers them a chance to live. But it's also a reminder of just how close they are to death. Every time they're hooked up to the machine, they're made to realize that something is wrong with them. They can't cleanse themselves of the impurities in their blood. Something external is needed, and at best it gives them only temporary relief from the problem. It can't solve the problem but it keeps them alive. And even more, it keeps alive the hope that someday a real kidney will be available for them. Someday, dialysis will no longer be needed. Their impurities will be dealt with from within because someone will graciously offer them what they need to be kept clean. I think that's a pretty good picture of life under the first covenant and the hope of the second. The Old Testament saints were kept clean. Their sins were temporarily covered by the sacrifices. 
But the real hope was for something permanent, something yet coming, a real cure for their sinful condition. For those early Christians, to give up on Christ and go back to the law would be like someone willingly rejecting a transplanted kidney to go back on dialysis. It just didn't make sense. The sacrifice of Jesus was that much superior to the sacrifices of the first covenant. And that was primarily because the sacrifice of Christ was an entirely different kind of sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of obedience. Verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In spite of the fact that God himself ordained the elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings in the first covenant, sacrifices and offerings are not what he wants. The prophets understood that. In Isaiah 111, we read, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. In Jeremiah 6.20, we read basically the same thing. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba and the sweet cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Amos went so far as to say in Amos 5, 21 through 22, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Why did the prophets say that? After God had asked for those sacrifices. I think Hosea exposed the heart of the problem when he wrote in Hosea 6, 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And Samuel laid it on the line when he told King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
Now, that's not to say that sacrifice in and of itself is wrong. In its essence, sacrifice was a beautiful thing. It was the taking of something dear or precious or valuable and giving it to God to show love. But sacrifice is easily degenerated into procedure whereby a man felt he was buying the forgiveness of God. Instead of being a token, a pledge of love and devotion, it became the supposed price of God's forgiveness. And that is what God hated. All the bulls and lambs and goats in the world could not make up for man's rebellion against his creator. What God wanted was obedience. He wanted man to do his will and to want to do his will. He wanted man to use the body God had given him in ways that brought glory to his creator. But men blew it. They rebelled. They did what they wanted to do in spite of what God wanted. And then, instead of recognizing that God himself would pay the price for the rebellion someday and expressing their love and faith in his love through offerings and sacrifices, men began to think that their token offerings would make God forget about the rebellion, would pay the price for their sin. But that was never God's purpose in ordaining sacrifices. He ordained them only to remind men that their obedience was incomplete and that something had to be done, something they could not do for themselves. A life of perfect obedience had to be lived. And then that life would have to be sacrificed to pay for man's rebellion. In the course of time, God prepared the body that would fulfill that purpose. His Holy Spirit prepared a special body within the womb of Mary that God's own Son, part of God Himself, would inhabit. And then, through that body, a perfect life could be lived. A life perfectly in tune with the will of God. God would become what he intended man to be. And then, to express the horror of sin and its consequences, and to pay the penalty that rebellion against God demanded, the Son of God died for us. He lived a life of perfect obedience and died in perfect obedience to the demands of justice. That's what God wanted. Total commitment to him. And he demonstrated it through his son. Jesus did the will of God. And because he did, God accepted his life and death as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Through that one sacrifice of perfect obedience, God made possible our sanctification. He made it possible for us to be give, for, forgiven of our sins and to be put to proper use. And that's what sanctify means, to be put to proper use. We were created for fellowship. 
with God. And now because of Jesus, we can fulfill that purpose for which we were created. We can have personal fellowship with our Creator, and Jesus makes it possible. He made it possible by one perfect sacrifice of obedience, one final sacrifice for sin. Verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and upon their mind. I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Our author begins this passage with a very subtle contrast that you might have missed. He notes that priests stand ministering and offering sacrifices daily that in reality can never take away sins. There's no finality to their work. They're always ministering. The tabernacle didn't have any chairs in it. There's no time to sit down. Their work was never finished. By way of comparison, Jesus offered one sacrifice the sacrifice that truly did take away sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. His job as Savior was done. The price had been paid. All he has to do now is let the word and the effect of his sacrifice spread throughout humanity. Victory over sin has been won and has been made available through the one sitting at the right hand of God. Someday all men, even the enemies of Christ, will bow before him, acknowledging his lordship. But there will be no fear in the hearts of those who have bowed before him in life and have asked him to make them acceptable their Heavenly Father. In fact, they will appear before God with no sense of guilt whatsoever because their sins will have been forgiven. And that's not to say a Christian should never feel guilty. You know, if we sin, our conscience under directions from the Holy Spirit should make us aware of that sin. But then we should remember that Christ has dealt with that sin. And that he did so even before the sin was committed. And that if in faith we trust Christ to keep us clean, we are clean. Because of Christ, 
There's no longer a need to feel guilty before God. Only grateful. Grateful that Jesus did what we could not do. He lived a life of perfect obedience. And through that perfect obedience made possible the forgiveness of our sin. We no longer have to worry about an external law. A law that points out how sinful we are. Now we have God's will imprinted on our heart. And the promise that even when we fail to perfectly follow his will, our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. They're gone. They have been forgiven. And there's no longer the need for additional offerings for sin. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean God no longer desires obedience that he no longer wants his people to follow his will. It simply means that our obedience is not a sacrifice for sin. That the things we do or don't do are not what make us right with God. Things were made right for us. Jesus made them right. Now we simply obey our Lord out of love, out of gratitude. We obey him to show how much we appreciate what he's done for us through Jesus. We obey him not because some law says we have to, but because we want to. And if we really understand what Jesus has done for us, we will want to obey him. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He offered up to God the sacrifice of perfect obedience so God would be able to accept our imperfect obedience as an expression of love and not as an imperfect attempt to find forgiveness for sin. We can now obey God to the best of our ability, drawing on the power of the Holy Spirit and be confident that God accepts it as an offering of love. Because the offering for sin has already been paid in full. We remember that sacrifice every week when we gather around the Lord's table. And we'll remember it next Friday, Good Friday, when we focus our thoughts on the cross. And then next Sunday morning, we will celebrate the glorious affirmation that the sacrifice of our Savior did for us what the blood of bulls and goats or we ourselves could never do. He died To save us and then arose to prove to us that he did indeed have the power and authority to do so. We've been saying this for weeks now. The author of Hebrews is convinced it's imperative that we understand the superiority of Jesus over anything else. He wants us to understand that we come before God 
on the basis of what God has done for us, not on the basis of what we've done for Him. How easily we get that confused. We start thinking that the life that we live is what makes us acceptable to God. It's not. It is not. The only thing that makes, makes us acceptable to a perfect God is a perfect sacrifice made through perfect obedience. And that was only possible if God did it himself. This may seem heavy and theological, but the author of Hebrews is now going to move into our life and say, because of that, this, 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 and this all falls in place. But if our theology is not right, all the good advice in the world is meaningless when it comes to standing before God. I pray you understand what Jesus did for you. And if you've not bowed before the Lord in gratitude and in full surrender to the one who has done this for you and loves you enough to die for you, I invite you to surrender before him now. Someday every knee will bow. Even the enemies of Christ will bow before him. Those who have fought against him their entire life will bow before him. How much better it is to bow before him now and find acceptance through the blood of Christ. If you need to surrender to the one who died for you, I invite you to do so.